Chapter thirty seven of Highways and Byways in Sussex. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. Highways and Byways in Sussex by E. V. Lucas. Chapter thirty seven Battle Abbey. The principal excursion from Hastings is, of course, to Battle, whither a company of discreetly satisfied Normans, Le Souvenir Normand, recently travelled to view with tactfully chastened enthusiasm the scene of the triumph of 1066 to erect a memorial and to perplex the old ladies of battle who provide tea except on one day of the week visitors to battle must content themselves with tea of which there is no stint and a view of the gateway for the rule of showing the abbey only on tuesdays is strictly enforced by the american gentleman who now resides on this historic site but the gateway could hardly be finer. The battlefield was half a mile south of the abbey on Tellum Hill, where, in Harold's day, was a hoary apple-tree. We have seen William landing at Pevensey on September the 28th, 1066. Thence he marched to Hastings to steal food, and thence, after a delay of a fortnight, to some extent spent in fortifying Hastings, and also in burning his boats, he marched to Tellum Hill. That was on October the 13th. On the same day Harold reached the neighbourhood with his horde of soldiers and armed rustics, and both armies encamped that night only a mile apart, waiting for the light to begin the fray. The Saxons were confident and riotous, the Normans hopeful and grave. According to Wace, all night the Saxons might be seen carousing, gambling, and dancing and singing. Boobly, they cried, and wassail, and laticum, and drink hile, and drink to me. At daybreak in the Norman camp, Bishop Odo celebrated high mass, and immediately after was hurried into his armour to join the fight. As the duke was arming, an incident occurred but for which Battle Abbey might never have been built. His suit of mail was offered him wrong side out. The superstitious Normans standing by looked sideways at each other with sinking misgiving. They deemed it a bad omen. But William's face betrayed no fear. If we win, he said, and God send we may, I will found an abbey here for the salvation of the souls of all who fall in the engagement. Before quitting his tent he was careful that those relics on which Harold had sworn never to oppose his efforts against England's throne should be hung around his neck. So the two armies were ready, the mounted Normans, with their conical helmets gleaming in the hazy sunlight, with kite-shaped shields, huge spears and swords, and the English, all on foot, with heavy axes and clubs. But theirs was a defensive part, the Normans had to begin. It fell to the lot of a wild troubadour named Taillefer to open the fight, he galloped from the Norman lines at full speed, singing a song of heroes, then checked his steed, and tossed his lance thrice in the air, thrice catching it by the point. The opposing lines silently wondered. Then he flung it at a luckless Saxon, with all the energy of a madman, spitting him as a skewer spits a lark. Taillefer had now only his sword left. This also he threw thrice into the air, and then seizing it with the grip of death he rode straight at the Saxon troops, dealing blows from left to right, 
and so was lost to view. Thus the Battle of Hastings began. "'On them in God's name!' cried William, "'and chastise these English for their misdeeds!' "'Dear Ed!' his men screamed, spurring to the attack. "'Out! Out!' barked the English. "'Holy Cross! God Almighty!' The carnage was terrific. It seemed for long that the English were prevailing, and they would in all likelihood have prevailed in the end, had they kept their position. But William feigned a retreat, and the English crossed their vallum in pursuit. The Normans at once turned their horses and pursued and butchered the unprepared enemy, singly in the open country. A complete rout followed. The false step was decisive. Not till night, however, did Harold fall. He upheld his standard to the last, hedged about by a valiant bodyguard, who resisted the Normans till every sign of life was battered out of them. The story of the vertically discharged arrow is a myth. An eyewitness thus described Harold's death. An armed man, said he, came in the throng of the battle, and struck him on the ventai of the helmet, and beat him to the ground, and as he sought to recover himself a knight beat him down again striking him on the thick of the thigh down to the bone. So died Harold on the exact site of the high altar of the abbey, and so passed away the Saxon kingdom. That night William, who was unharmed, though three horses were killed under him, had his tent set up in the midst of the dead, and there he ate and drank. In the morning the Norman corpses were picked out and buried with due rites. The Saxons were left to rot. According to the Carmen, William I had Harold's body wrapped in purple linen and carried to Hastings, where it was buried on the cliff, beneath a stone inscribed with the words, By the order of the Duke you rest here, King Harold, as the guardian of the shore and the sea. Mr. Lower was convinced of the truth of that story, but William of Malmesbury said that William sent Harold's body to his mother, the Countess Gytha who buried it at Waltham, while a third account shows us Editha of the Swan Neck, Harold's wife, wandering through the blood-stained grass among the fallen English, until she found the body of her husband, which she craved leave to carry away. William, this version adds, could not deny her. Fuller writes in the Worthies concerning the wonders of Sussex, Expect not here I should insert what William of Newbury writeth, to be recounted rather amongst the untruths than wonders, that is, that in this county not far from Bataille Abbey, in the place where so great a slaughter of the Englishman was made, after any shower presently sweateth forth very fresh blood out of the earth, as if the evidence thereof did plainly declare the voice of blood there shed and crieth still from the earth unto the Lord. This is as true as that in white, chalky countries, about Baldock in Hertfordshire, after rain, run rivulets of milk, neither being anything less than the water discoloured, according to the complexion of the earth thereabouts. The conqueror was true to his vow, and the Abbey of St. Martin was quickly begun. At first there was difficulty about the stone, which was brought all the way from Cain Quarries, until, according to an old writer, a pious matron dreamed that stone in large quantities was to be found near at hand, 
her vision leading to the discovery of a neighbouring quarry, the work proceeded henceforward with exceeding rapidity. Although the first abbot was appointed in 1076, William the Conqueror did not live to see the abbey finished. Sixty monks of the Order of St. Benedict came to battle from the abbey of Marmontier in Normandy to form its nucleus. It was left to William Rufus to preside over the consecration of battle, which was not until February 1095, when the ceremony was performed amid much pomp. William presented to the abbey his father's coronation robe and the sword he had wielded in the battle. Several wealthy manors were attached, and the country round was exempted from tax, while the abbots were made superior to episcopal control, and were endowed with the right to sit in Parliament and a London house to live in during the session. Indeed, nothing was left undone that could minister to the pride and power of the new house of God. The Abbey of St. Martin was quadrangular, standing in the midst of a circle nine miles round. Within this were vineyards, stew-ponds, and rich land. Just without was a small street of artisans' dwellings, where were manufactured all things requisite for the monk's material well-being. The church was the largest in the country, larger even than Canterbury. It was also a sanctuary, any sentenced criminal who succeeded in sheltering therein receiving absolution from the abbot. The high altar, as I have said, was erected precisely on the spot where Harold fell, a spot on which one may now stand and think of the past. Battle Abbey was more than once visited by kings. In 1200 John was there, shaking like a quicksand. He brought a piece of our Lord's sepulchre, which had been wrested from Palestine by Richard the Lionheart, and laid it with tremulous hands on the altar, hoping that the magnificence of the gift might close heaven's eyes towards sins of his own. In 1212 he was at Battle Abbey again, and for the last time in 1213, seeking, maybe, to find in these silent cloisters some forgetfulness of the mutterings of hate and scorn that everywhere followed him. Just before the Battle of Lewis, Henry III galloped up, attended by a bodyguard of overbearing horsemen, and levied large sums of money to assist him in the struggle. After the battle he returned, a weary refugee, but still rapacious. These visits were not welcome. It was different when Edward II slept there on the night of August the 28th, 1324. Alan de Ketbury, the abbot, was bent on showing loyalty at all cost, while the neighbouring lords and squires were hardly less eager. The abbot's contribution to the kitchen included twenty score and four loaves of bread, two swans, two rabbits, three pheasants, and a dozen capons. William de Etchingham sent three peacocks, twelve bream, six muttons, and other delicacies, and Robert Aikland, four rabbits, six swans, and three herons. In 1331 Abbot Hamo and his monks kept at bay a body of French marauders who had landed at Rye until the country gentlemen could assemble and repulse them utterly. Then followed two peaceful centuries. But afterwards came disaster, for in 1558 Thomas Cromwell sent down two commissioners to examine into the state of the abbey and report thereon to the zealous defender of the faith. 
the commissioners found nineteen books in the library, and rumours of monkish debauchery without the walls. "'So beggary a house,' wrote one of the officers, "'I never see.' Battle Abbey was therefore suppressed, and presented to Sir Anthony Brown, upon whom, as we saw in the first chapter, the curse of Cowdrey was pronounced by the last departing monk. To catalogue the present features of Battle Abbey is to vulgarise it. One comes away with confused memories of grey walls embraced by white clematis and red rose, gloomy underground caverns with double rows of arches, where the brothers might not speak, benignant cedars blessing the turf with extended hands, fragrant limes waving their delicate leaves, an old rose-garden with fantastic beds, a long yew-walk where the brothers might meditatively pace, turning, perhaps, an epigram, regretting, perhaps, the world. Nothing now remains of the refectory where, of old, forty monks fed like one, except the walls. It once had a noble roof of Irish oak, but that was taken to Cowdray, and perished in the fire there, together with the abbey roll. One of the abbey's first charms is the appropriateness of its gardens. They too are old. In the cloisters, for instance, there are wonderful box borders. Turner painted Battle Abbey, the spot where Harold fell, with a greyhound pressing hard upon a hare in the foreground, and a Scotch fir italianated into a golden bough. The town of Battle has little interest. In the church is a brass to Thomas Alfrey and his wife Elizabeth. Thomas Alfrey, whose soul, according to his epitaph, in active strength did pass, as ne'er was found his peer. One would like to know more of this, Samson. The tomb of Sir Anthony Brown is also here, but it is not so imposing as that of his son, the first Viscount Montague, which we saw at Easebourne. In the churchyard is the grave of Isaac Ingall, the oldest butler on record, who died at the age of one hundred and twenty, after acting as butler at the Abbey for ninety-five years. From battle one may easily reach Normanhurst, the seat of the Brassies, and Ashburnham Park, just to the north of it, a superb, undulating domain, with lakes, an imposing mansion, an old church, brake-fern, magnificent trees, and a herd of deer, all within its confines. Of the church, however, I can say nothing, for I was there on a very hot day, the door was locked, and the key was at the vicarage, ten minutes distant at the top of a hill. Churches that are thus controlled must be neglected. Ashburnham Place once contained some of the finest books in England, and is still famous for its relics of Charles I, but strangers may not see them. The best Sussex iron was smelted at Ashburnham Furnace, north of the park, near Penhurst. Ashburnham Forge was the last to remain at work in the county. Its last surviving labourer of the neighbourhood died in 1883. He remembered the extinguishing of the fire in 1813, or 1811, the casting of firebacks being the final task. Penhurst, by the way, is one of the most curiously remote villages in East Sussex, with the oddest little church. 
I walked to Ashburnham from Ninfield, a clean, breezy village on the hill overlooking Pevensey Bay, with a locked church, and iron stocks by the side of the road. It is stated somewhere that at that corner of Crouch Lane that leads to Lunford Cross, and so to Bexhill and Hastings, was buried a suicide in 1675. At how many crossroads in Sussex and elsewhere does one stand over such graves? One may return to Hastings by way of Catsfield, which has little interest, and Crowhurst, famous for the remains of a beautiful manor-house, and a yew-tree supposed to be the oldest in Sussex. It is curious that Crowhurst in Surrey is also known for a great yew. End of chapter 37